0: Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, FIFTY at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network's Middle East Studies Podcast. I'm Ruben Silverman, and with me is Professor Sevgi Adak. Professor Adak is associate professor at Aga Khan University's Institute for the Study of Muslim Civilizations. Her book, anti veiling Campaigns in Turkey, State, Society, and Gender in the Early Republic, has just been published by IB Taurus. But before we get into the details of that book, I'd like to get to know Professor Adak a little. So if you can tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, And what brought you to this topic of anti veiling campaigns in Turkey during the 1930s?
1: Yes, sure. Um, First of all, thank you very much, Ruben, for having me. It's a great pleasure and honor to be here. As you have mentioned in your introduction, I'm an associate professor at the Gahan University's Institute for the Study of Muslim Civilizations based in London. I have a background in political science and history. I trained as a political scientist and historian. I did my BA in political science at Bilkent University in Ankara, and then did my first MA in history at Sabancı University, Istanbul, and then I moved to Toronto, to Canada, and did a second MA in political science at York University. I also started my PhD in political science, so, um, I mean... I think it's fair to say that uh, I went back and forth between these two disciplines, political science and history, throughout my graduate studies. Uh, But eventually, I completed my PhD at the School of Middle Eastern Studies at Leiden University, the Netherlands, and uh, ended up writing mainly, I would say, a history dissertation on which the book is uh, based. Uh, And I would say... um, My research on Turkey lies also very much at the intersection of these two disciplines, political science and history, with gender cutting across as a a central theme and as a um, theoretical lens. And since the completion of my PhD, I've continued to work on questions of state-society relations, the relationship between religion and politics in Turkey, dynamics of secularization and desecularization, and um, also the transformation of the gender regime in modern Turkey. And my research has this emphasis on two periods, mainly interwar Turkey. And I also work on Turkey under the current um, Justice and Development Party government in the last two decades. And and the question of, uh, you know, why and how I arrived to this topic, the topic of anti-wailing campaigns, has, has a long answer, uh, but I will try to shorten the story here. Uh, and there are some, I suppose, biographical elements as well. Uh, as you know, I'm from Turkey. I grew up in Izmir, Izbe- And as I said, I moved to Ankara uh, to study at Bilkent. And I would say, in fact, that education that I received at Bilkent was very formative to my journey to become a scholar of Turkey. It was mainly in those years that I was exposed to a more critical reading of Turkey's recent past. It was a period in Turkey where the intellectual debates and academic research were very much dominated by um, a a critical perspective, critical especially of the Kemalist narratives uh, of the the Republic. So being exposed to that critical reading um, helped me to challenge or to, to, to revisit some of the myths that... I was told, as any other student of the Turkish national education system would be told, and these myths are actually still being told in the national education system in Turkey. Uh, And also, this was quite a tense period politically as well in Turkey, the late 1990s and early 2000s. The country, when I started university, the country had just witnessed um, experienced the uh, 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 so-called soft coup cool, an intervention to the government that was a coalition government but dominated by the Islamist Welfare Party and that process came to be known as the process of February 28th process because the intervention was done on the twen- uh, February 28th, 1997 it was also a period when the headscarf ban was at its peak the universities so I witnessed some of the effects of that ban at the campus I watched my classmates uh, with whom I was staying at the same dormitory trying to put wigs on top of their headscarves to you know uh, hide their headscarves or them trying to cover their head hair with various forms of hats so that Basically, they could go to their class. And there were also investigations against those female students um, that wore the headscarf. And of course, that was, it was also then that I realized or that you know, the gendered aspect of this issue became very apparent to me as my conservative Muslim male classmates, and some of them were quite openly Islamist, they were you know affiliated with uh, politically as well with um, Islamist circles there was no such intervention to their education they were free to go to class so I think that was the first moment you know thinking back now that was the first moment I think that I started to think about not so much about the whaling itself I have to say not so much about the question of you know why women veil, etc but more about uh, why this issue is, I mean, is so loaded politically? And how is it that it became very much entangled with questions of modernity and and secularism? And of course, oh, the gendered na- nature of, of these questions. Then at Sabanju, in the history program, I learned Ottoman Turkish and started to work more closely on the history of the Ottoman Turkish modernization. I wrote my MA thesis on the regulation and transformation of the Ramadans and Ramadan rituals in the early republic. That was my first entry to the history of interwar Turkey. In my second MA at York, I worked on Islamic feminism in Turkey. So kind of went back to the question of you know how a generation of headscarf women were affected by what happened in the nineteen nineties and they were ultimately changed politically, as well. And I, by then, at the end of um, my second MA, I knew already that I would work on the historical origins of these questions and would focus on the inter-war period. And the case of the anti vailing campaigns emerged from my readings on the period in the context of the Middle East as, as it emerged as as the most promising case um, to not only understand the origins of these questions, but also because of the local character of these campaigns, these campaigns were also promising as a case to see more clearly the situation in the provinces, to see, um, you know, how the state reforms that were formulated by the central elites in Ankara traveled to the provinces and were translated into the daily conduct of the state because by then my thinking on on Turkish modernization on the Kemalist regime or how we understand the Kemalist state had very much changed already by as a result of my encounter with social history um with history from below, the literature on state-society relations. So I wanted to focus on the local context, on the way such policies were implemented at local level and were negotiated by the local actors than you know, what the Kemalist ideal modern woman was or what the central elite in Ankara aspired to, to create. And initially, in fact, the idea was to do a balanced comparison between Turkey and Iran. And that's why I went to Iran. I started learning Persian. Uh, But in the end, as I started the research itself, um, I had to dig so much to unearth the campaigns in the Turkish case that I eventually decided to focus on the Turkish case primarily and um limited myself with a kind of unbalanced unbalanced um comparison with Iran, which composes the last chapter of the book. Hmm.
0: Well let's let's come to that comparison at the end. Um first though, so the main thrust of the book is that in the 1930s, that's when we're seeing the the most intense period of these veiling campaigns. But perhaps we can give a little bit of background before we get into that. In the, in the late last years of the Ottoman Empire, the first years of the Republic, what were some campaigns that had preceded the 1930s, some debates that had preceded the 1930s?
1: Yes. Um, well, actually, it's possible to think of the anti-vailing campaigns of the 1930s as part of a longer history uh, of the, the debate around um, modernization of clothing as part of the Ottoman Turkish modernization, but also specifically um, the discussions around um, women's whaling. And, and we can certainly see them in a way as a continuation of an Ottoman tradition, in fact, of state intervention in uh, and um, regulation of especially women's clothing practices, because we know that There were various directives and regulations introduced by the Ottoman state uh, to regulate women's dress, especially to monitor Muslim women's compliance to Islamic dress codes. For example, you know, the length of the whale or the thickness of the fabric that were used for the whale or the color or the size of women's dress. These could be all subject to state regulation. And um, this state regulation of clothing increased as we are told by Ottoman historians, parallel to the extension of state control over society. And as the Ottoman state emerged as a as a modern state that was invested in disciplining the behavior of its subjects um, from the 18th century onwards. And then there is kind of an intensification of these attempts to regulate women's dress in the 19th century. For example, in the late 19th century, we know that there uh, was a set of regulations concerning women's dress prohibiting the use of transparent face veils or light-coloured uh, ferrages, which was the main outdoor clothing for women at the time. And often the pressure coming from the ulama, from the more conservative um, segments of the elite, played a, a role in these interventions. So there was kind of a concern to maintain modesty in women's clothing Practices and to prevent Muslim women to imitate, basically Western styles, European styles, and trends in women's dress, because of course, I mean, there was that kind of a concern, precisely because there was a rapid and quite the dramatic social change that was already happening, and we know that uh, elite Ottoman Muslim women, women, especially from the upper classes, had already started adopting different forms of clothing and veiling practices that were very much in line in fact uh, with the the clothing of the European women by the late uh, 19th century and so this change and and the debate around it became really a central issue and i i would say kind of a field of struggle really for the supporters of various political positions in the Ottoman society towards the late 19th century. And this was also a period when um, the char-shaf, that is the full-body cover, which is usually in black, which is very similar to Iranian chador, increasingly replaced the firage as Ottoman women's outdoor attire in uh, major urban settings. The debates that emerged, especially in the aftermath of the 1908 Constitutional Revolution, was very much revolved around, in fact, the use of the face veil, which is called uh, pece in Turkish, and the charge of the, the full-body cover. Because, in fact, as many observers of the time tell us, uh, the use of these uh, veils um, had dropped significantly, especially in Istanbul. So European fashion trends were quite common and you know, there was um, a change in char models, for example. And, you know, a more traditional form of char was abandoned and very much replaced by the elite uh, segments of the population by you know shorter versions of char-shaft, uh, a char that would look more like a clock or Europeanized uh, versions of the Çarşaf, which was called Tango Çarşaf at the time. Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, so also this coincided, of course, with a dramatic shift in the social position and public visibility of Ottoman Muslim women after the war years, World War I. And so when women became, began to work in governmental offices, workshops, trades, etc., which in a way put an extra pressure on the traditional gender seclusion practices, which again, you know, filled the anxieties and, and moral panic among the conservative segments of the uh, elite. Um, and so, for example, um, we see suggestions in, uh, you know, Islamist conservative journals at the time that the Shah Shaf should be made compulsory, to counter further relaxation of uh, wailing, etc. But on the other hand, the modernist male intellectuals were openly condemning um, women's seclusion and the wailing practices as one of the reasons of Ottoman society's backwardness vis-a-vis the West. They would very much point at wailing, uh, which meant first and foremost the covering of the face, uh, face in these discussions, as something that, you know, a practice that excluded women from social life, something that prevented them from getting education, something that impeded their uh, social development. And so basically, these practices degenerated Ottoman society. And they would very much push an, an agenda to reform women's clothing and to find what they would say, um, what they would call a national dress, Millik And this search for a national dress was also very much embraced by the Ottoman women's movement and they were also critical of the type of among, um that was common among Ottoman women at the time, which was predominantly composed of, as I said, the use of the face veil and the çarşav. these women would us argue that these practices were improper they weren't the type of traditional dress that ottoman women would wear they would have uh, that they had a negative impact on women's health and they impeded women from participating in the workforce and they would very much also argue that these veiling practices were not in line with islamic veiling codes either and and they were not surely in line with the necessities of modern public life. So, in fact, um, a lot of the arguments that will, be, that will be utilized in the Kemalist discourse against the Peche and the of in the early republic had already been formulated by the reformist, modernist elite of the late Ottoman period, um, I would say, men and women alike. And it was also in this context that a close association was established between the removal of the Pecha and charshaf and women's participation in the public life. And this, this is very significant because this association, this connotation that um, Pecha and charshaf sit contrary to uh, you know, women's visibility, women's participation in the public life would also very much use uh, would be used by the Republic. I mean, the Republic would bail, build on that association that was established in the late Ottoman Empire. And in fact, of course, they would reinforce this idea in the following uh, decades. But I would like to also mention that these arguments uh, you know, against the Petra and the Char-Shav, uh would go hand in hand with a, a caution Um, raised against over-Westernization. So that emphasis on the millikiafet, the national clothing, uh, was very, very significant, that it, it wouldn't mean necessarily completely imitating Western women. And this was also something that the Republic also inherited and adopted. Although we can say that the emphasis on the need for modern and civilized clothing. And I'm, perhaps I should make a footnote here. Whenever I say modern and civilized, I'm using these words in quotation marks because, at the, time, because the elite of the time uh, would use these um, you know, words quite often. So these references that some, some clothes were backward and uncivilized and that some were modern and civilized uh, would of course intensify under under the Kemalist regime. And after the establishment of the republic, of course the first turning point uh, in terms of state intervention in ordinary people's clothing will be the hat law of 1925. And um, this is to a large extent rightly known as the dress law of the republic and one of the boldest of <laughs> the so-called um, feminist reforms, and of course this law was only about male headgear and if you look at the text of the of the law itself, it was actually quite short and um, contrary to what is often argued in relation to this law, it didn't impose the modern hat to all men, it certainly made it compulsory for uh, the state officials and the members of the parliament, but w- what what it said was that the Ottoman fast and other traditional maillet gear were banned, which in practice meant which in practice meant that that limited scope of the text and the law itself didn't matter much or meant very little because traditionally speaking going out Bareheaded, without wearing any headgear for men, was considered improper. So for many men, this was perceived as an intervention into deeply rooted cultural practices, and also for some to, you know, um, Islamic dress dress norms. So we know that, for example, it created uh, reactions. Um, there were demonstrations, so collective action in a number of provinces. Um, But most significant, perhaps, for the case, I mean, in terms of its relationship with the the case of the anti-wailing campaigns, is that the head law created this national campaign, I mean, almost a mobilization for modern clothing. So the fact that the, the law itself was limited to male headgear only didn't sort of prevent the fact that the discussion was very much about, you know, reforming the entire clothing uh, of men and women. So th- there was clearly a link in the debate, uh, in the, in, you know, in the public opinion that there was clearly a link between this intervention in male headgear and women's veiling, even though there was nothing about women's clothing, uh, you know, within the scope of the law itself. Um so that's one thing that that I think that mobilization that the Hadlow triggered is very important and is is the context uh within which we should understand the anti vailing campaigns. And in fact, the early examples of anti vailing campaigns, which I call the the first wave, which was a weak wave, but nevertheless uh, a wave, um came. Right after the introduction of the head law. So there were initiatives in, in a number of provinces to ban especially the face whale. And when you look at how these initiatives were justified by the local administrators, they would pretty much refer to the head law. And so they so they would find some legitimacy there, arguing that you know if we now embarked upon Uh, a mission to modernise male clothing, this would obviously mean that we should also modernise women's clothing. Um, So this is one thing, the the, the connection, the direct connection between the head law and the anti veiling campaigns. The second, of course, is the question, ultimately, that why is it that the regime intervened in, in male headgear through a legislation whereas deliberately Chose not to uh, go, not to use the sim- similar method, the same method, in changing women's uh, clothing. So the head law in a way directly affected the the choice of method that should be followed um, in the case of uh, women's clothing. And I think the decision ultimately to not outlaw the Peche and was very significant. And in my argument in the book, that choice ultimately created an ambiguity that marked the anti-veiling campaigns, not just in the 20s, but also the main wave in the 1930s. So, of course, um, part of the reason why um, they chose, the the Kemalist regime chose to not to legislate against the Peche and was the, the, the social or public reaction to the head law. So the Kemalist regime opted for a more cautious approach when it comes to um, changing women's clothing. But I think it also goes beyond that. And I don't think that we can explain the lack of legislation or a or a governmental decree in the case of women's clothing solely by the elites Puritans or you know their fear of creating another wave of, of social reaction like the, the Headlow created. I think I mean I, I make this argument in the book um, that there was a kind of patriarchal consensus among the elite and non-elite male actors in the in the society and I think that Consensus should it be underestimated in the sense that even though, of course, these male um, segments of you know, male actors were they had very different ideological visions and political positionings, nevertheless they had they shared this consensus and especially this caution against over modernization, over-westernization, that ultimately I think ensured that the, the modernist policies should be formulated and implemented in a way that, that they wouldn't undermine um, too much the existing uh, gender norms and the existing gender codes. But the main wave will come in the 1930s.
0: Well, yeah. And as, as you argue, in the 1930s, there is just a a larger wave and intensification of the number of these campaigns, and what 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 are some things that account for that? Why is it the 1930s, and really even 1934 and onwards, that we see this happening?
1: Yeah, I mean, I actually spent quite a lot of time um, thinking about uh, the timing itself, and especially as you mentioned, you know, what is what was it that. That was so peculiar about this year, nineteen thirty-four. I mean, I have to say um, that because the anti-vailing campaigns were local campaigns, campaigns. So, as I said, you uh, you had to really dig uh, quite a lot to locate, you know, exactly in which provinces, you know, which district capitals, which provincial capitals that you actually had until you know had a campaign. I present in the book. Which I believe the most comprehensive list of these campaigns, but nevertheless, it's not uh, the you know it's not the comprehensive exhaustive list in a way because you really have to dig in every single local uh, context in order to you know and um, find out whether there was a campaign there or not. But in my my research, what I've seen is that although there are an, a few number of campaigns, or you know initiatives or or like propaganda initiatives in 1933 as well. The the main wave really starts in 1934 um, and then they had their peak in 1935. Now, I think there's one general sort of context within which that we can situate the anti vading campaigns and that is, of course, the context of the 1930s Turkey and we know that the regime shifted towards a more authoritarian uh, form of governing with the 1930s there is a clear shift towards statism especially after the great depression and those economic th- that change in economic policies towards statism and state led development had also an impact in other fields. We see more systematic attempts um, at centralization of, for example, provincial administration. We we have um, the the municipal law of 1930, for example, which would be quite important in in the anti-wailing campaigns as well. We see that the party, the Republican People's Party, that was the governing party, well, the only party, in fact, uh, that existed in that period, uh, became much more active in trying to mobilize the society along the, um, you know, ideological aspirations of the regime. And to an extent that it became really difficult to differentiate between the party and the state. And eventually, scholars are, you know, talk about a merger of the party and the state. And and then with all these elements, we see a consolidation of an authoritarian single party system, which had overall a more systematic ideological agenda. And that's why the 1930s, the period was also characterized by a kind of a renewed attempt at uh, cultural modernization, and I think the anti-whaling campaigns should really be seen as part of that cultural modernization, and as part of the state's effort to extend its control over the society. But of course, you know that cultural modernization was quite extensive, so there were number of policies or the so-called you know reforms or or what. They would be control, call, called at the time Inklap revolutions, movements, especially in the mid-1930s. I remember a report that I cited in the book by the then um, American ambassador who was writing back to Washington about the general atmosphere in the year, writing 1934, saying that the entire society is basically bewildered by an astonishing series of reforms, movements, revolutions, whatever you want to call them. Western measures were adopted. There was the music reform. There was the Turkification of the call to prayer and attempts at the Turkification of other elements of uh, worship. There was the language reform. There was the surname law. There was the settlement law. And embedded in this astonishing series of, of reforms that basically shaped the cultural transformation was an obsession, I would say, with visual aspects of culture. With this you know, obsession to create a visible, modern, Republican culture. The idea that people, you know, with their modern look, would transform the public sphere was very strong it was also very strong this obsession with what the europeans would think about the turkish society so there was that element of i don't know self orientalization as seeing yourself on a, on a um, european mirror um, so yes so the anti-vailing companies were very much part of that you know, attempt at cultural modernization. The year specifically in 1934 was critical. I mean, my ultimate answer to why that was the case in the book was that there was a clear association between women's acquisition of their political rights in 1934 and their participation in the public sphere and hence the modernization of clothing. And I, I, I know that it sounds to our modern you know, contemporary ears that this is a, a rather uh, old link, but that link was very strong at the time. So when women acquired their political rights, their rights to a vote and to be elected in national elections, that was considered as the kind of ultimate point in terms of women's emancipation under the Kemalist regime. So that perception that you know women now have received all of their rights, even rights that were far beyond the rights that women enjoyed in some European countries, that meant that now they would be fully you know uh, they would fully participate in the public sphere and that idea of again participating in the public sphere was completely in a contradiction in their mind with women secluding themselves, with women co- with women covering their face, uh, for example. So there was that very strong connotation between, again, women's visibility, public visibility, participation in the public sphere, and removal of the peche and the, and the, and the church of so that's how I explained why the year 1934 was um, was a turning point, basically.
0: Well, so then maybe we can turn to some of these uh, these anti veiling campaigns, and we can talk about them. You know, your book, more than any other work I've seen on them, really emphasizes this local element and draws on. Interesting sources to talk about it, so maybe even briefly, but nonetheless, can you talk about the sorts of sources you draw on, and then more importantly, perhaps the insights you've been able to make about this way the local process occurred? Uh, that would be fascinating, I think, to talk about
1: yeah that that is a very important aspect of my analysis in the book that is the the idea of bringing the local back into the analysis of the single-party period in Turkey, because I think that it has been neglected in the literature as a relatively insignificant uh, element. Um, And why that was the case? Because the focus was very much on the central state. I mean, whatever the approach that was adopted in, in hegemonic, Uh, analysis of single party Turkey, there was one kind of unifying assumption that you know there was a strong state, there was a a group of central elite that was quite homogenous in in, and uniform, and even the assumption that you know there was kind of a blueprint of modernization at their hands and this modernization itself, also as a, as a process, can be understood as a very uniform, linear process of change, you know, that is likely to produce the intended results, the results intended by the elite in the end. Uh, what I say in the book is that this created a kind of a loopsided analysis, I think, um, in the sense that we have a huge literature on interwar Turkey. On Kemalism, on the Kemalist regime, etc. But I mean, if you look at the literature, yes, we know a great deal about the Kemalist elite, about Atatürk, about the elite that um, were around the close circle of his political group. You know, we know about their ideological inspirations. You know, we know about their ideological positions, their the reforms that they created or formulated. But we know, I mean, significantly less about the implementation of those reforms, the implementation processes of those reforms, and also that, you know, how they were negotiated, how they were domesticated, how they were put into practice of the daily conduct of the state, but also sort of uh, negotiated by the social actors. So the, the point of departure in the book is really this critique that the the hegemonic narratives of the single-party period really don't help us to understand this complexity of the socio-historical reality on the ground. And, you know, the idea, the critique that those complexities cannot be analyzed through dichotomies such as state versus society, you know, Kemalist elite versus the conservative masses, or the Kemalist regime versus the hulk, the people. Rather, we need to see basically the state in action. We need to look at the various encounters between the state and the the state actors and social actors at all levels of the state, but also among actors within the state. I mean, need to understand how state policies, as I said, were negotiated and consumed, and in fact changed by local actors, by local administrators, but also by ordinary people and by women in the case of anti-wailing campaigns. Um, but of course, it was very also important for me to not to lose the sight of the macro picture as well and also the involvement of, of Ankara. So in the book, I very much commit myself to, to try to keep that macro-micro balance. And that was, as I said, as you said, um, was possible thanks to a selection of a number of sources. And of course, every historian of um, the single-party period in Turkey would, would visit the state archives in Ankara, But as I said, because of the nature of these campaigns, uh, I mean, you can't find a list of the campaigns in the archives. You can locate some of the anti-Valic campaigns by looking at the communication between the center and the provinces, but that's quite um, limited. So I made an extensive use of local newspapers. I consulted 12 local newspapers uh, from eight provinces, and I cross-read them with national newspapers and these local newspapers r- proved really as as uh, proved to be really rich sources and they really allowed me to gather a very rich new body of information that depicted the situation at the local uh, level and that's that's how i also um, managed to come up with the most comprehensive list of anti-whaling campaigns. I also used the police police archives, Turkish police archives, which proved to be also very helpful, as well as the American and British consular reports. And um, I would say the British consular reports especially uh, were extremely helpful. Uh, They were uh, surprisingly rich, in analysing the local context. They provided very rare observations of the situation at the local level, which I could compare and contrast with the reports from the Turkish sources uh, on the provinces. So I think it was really mainly through the combination of these different sources, the local newspapers, the Turkish state archives and police documents, and the consular reports that... Provided me a broad lens through which I could draw a general picture of the anti-vailing campaigns and situate them as a as a countrywide phenomenon, but also I could locate local variations and the complexity and diversity of the situation in the periphery of the country. And if I can just very briefly maybe touch upon the situation that I. I I observed in 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 the localities, so I I, I talk about this um, through a discussion of first the role of the local elites, and I follow here a definition of local elites um, that that sees them really as a as a composite group and, and in, a, in a broad sense, because if you look at the literature on local elites. In Turkey, it's very much shaped by this uh, assumption that, you know, we had the local notables on the one hand and they were really locals of these provinces. And on the other hand, we had the governors, mayors or appointed state officials that were non-locals. There's also this assumption that these appointed uh, local administrators and state officials were really quite homogenous politically. Whereas uh, my analysis of the local elites shows that, first of all, that, that clear-cut distinction between local versus non-local didn't work quite clearly in, in, in that way in, in practice. So there were several cases where that distinction was quite blurry. Uh, and second, that the local elite as a composite group were actually quite far far from being homogenous politically. I mean, obviously, this was a, you know authoritarian single-party regime. So to be a governor under that regime or to be a mayor uh, or even a state official, you would be a Republican and a supporter of the regime. But that, in fact, um, was a much broader notion than is usually assumed in the literature on the single-party era, meaning that below that, you know, surface, you know, I'm a supporter of the regime, I'm Republican, or I'm I'm a Kemalist, whatever uh, that meant at the time. Below that surface, uh, you could actually trace diverse political positions at the local context, uh, conflicts between the local elite, uh, based on economic interest, based on political rivalry, sometimes even personal rivalry, really, and which sort of also uh, resulted in very diverse reactions or, 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 yeah, implementation of the anti-vailing campaigns. And so the argument is that these local elites played a very critical role in that, and perhaps the most important, uh, one of the most important roles in the shaping of the uh, anti-vailing campaigns. And that diversity ranges from, you know, the local elites that actually were the main initiators of the campaigns at the local level. So we need to reckon that some of the local administrators were really keen supporters of the modernist ambitions of the regime And they were quite uh, zealously so. And and sometimes they would even avoid the policy instructions coming from Ankara. And so they would sometimes act openly contrary to Ankara's directive. So there are indications that at least in certain provinces, the initiative was genuinely local, the initiative to actually start a, a campaign against these whales. And because Ankara was actually quite ambiguous in terms of the policy choices or measures that were available to the local administrators to deal with this issue, this create, this gave even a wider space for the local elite to maneuver around this, um, this issue. I mean, for example, uh, Ankara was quite consistent in telling the local administrators, not to opt for police measures, not to impose the bans on the peche and charge off through municipal police, for example, or the police or the soldiers, the gendarmerie. But in practice, we know that such forces were used in a number of localities and that women were fined for wearing the peche and the charge off. and or that, you know, the municipal police did intervene in women's clothing on the streets. So, in fact, some local administrators imposed really comprehensive bans, including, you know, measures to limit women's mobility, so much so that, you know, they would say, veiled women cannot go to this park or that park, or veiled women, I mean, their petitions to the state offices should not be accepted, etc. And having heard of these practices, Ankara actually tried to control the situation and um, tried to tell the local administrators to act responsibly, cautiously, and to avoid using any strict, you know, measures and to apply them by by force. But nevertheless, on the other hand, of course, Ankara was quite aware of the actions of the local authorities and tried to limit them, but couldn't get them under control. And these I think also hint at the at the limited capacity of the regime, really. It, but it may also suggest that particularly in cases like the anti vailing campaigns, in which the policy guidelines of the central government were quite ambiguous, and there were we know that disagreements among even among the elite in Ankara, as well as Ankara and the provinces, So those disagreements tended to come to the surface and created an ambiguous situation in terms of how to turn the reform ideal into reality. And so some of the local administrators, on the other hand, and some of the local elite, would also seize that opportunity, that ambiguity, to resist anti-vailing campaigns. I mean, we have cases like, for example, in Trabzon, Members of the city council, some members of the city council, tried to delay a discussion around the question of Pecha and veil at the, at the council as much as possible, and they managed to delay a discussion for a year. So there was also resistance coming from uh, the local, local elite local elite as well, not to mention uh, the social resistance coming from uh, ordinary people. And in particular, you talk about how women
0: are involved in these campaigns and how women play a role in shaping these campaigns. So perhaps uh, we can talk about that for a little bit.
1: Yeah, exactly. So um, as I said, I mean, one of the main arguments of the book is is that women were actually quite central, at the center of these uh, campaigns. And they were the actors where obviously... Uh, ultimately, were the re, you know actors that were at the receiving end of these ulti- uh, campaigns, but they were also central to the ultimate shape that these campaigns will took. Uh, sorry, uh, would take in at the local level, and so they were by no means passive receivers of state policies. Um, they weren't passive actors to be emancipated as often depicted in feminist interpretations of the anti-wailing campaigns, but they were also not victims of this oppression as, you know, Islamist or conservative accounts of anti-wailing campaigns would put it. Um, so they were very much at the center and their reactions really shaped the course of the anti-wailing campaigns at the local level. And by reactions as well, I think that, One of the arguments that I make in the book is that we really need a um, multi sided, multi, I mean, a, a, a very complex notion of agency to understand women's reactions because it clearly went beyond these simplistic accounts of emancipation versus oppression and the complexity and the diversity of the ways in which women reacted to anti-Uanian campaigns and were involved in these campaigns, really asks for a more nuanced reading of what ultimately communist modernization meant for women at the time. So in that sense, also, one of the aims of the book is to engage with a critical Dialogue in a way with the feminist literature, which very much shaped me uh, as a scholar. But nevertheless, I also suggest that um, some of the assumptions of that literature should also be revisited. Uh, first and foremost, the assumption that, mm-hmm. for example, the so-called Kemalist reforms and, and you know related to women's uh, issues were limited in 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 scope that that you know they didn't touch really the majority of the women so i actually question this assumption and i show through the case of the anti campaigns that the so-called kemalist project did touch the lives of women in the provinces and that project was negotiated and tra- was transformed by by women's reactions and their ordinary agencies. And I show this by documenting the diverse ways that women responded uh, to uh, anti-whaling campaigns. I mean these responses again really shouldn't be confined to you know these boxes of resistance versus subordination or resistance versus full compliance. Uh, because I mean what i 've seen in my research is that what 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 seems to be a resistance or compliance in the first instance may very well not be intended by as such by women themselves or women's first reaction can be compliance, but it might not mean submission to what was imposed, so we really need to reckon that for most women, this basically meant um, trying to handle the situation because they were trapped by a political authority at the local level on the one hand that imposed certain norms and their families, their community, that is the patriarchal social structure that they were situated in. That's why, for example, most women try to avoid confrontation with both of these patriarchal forces and try to adapt to the new dress run. Norms, And I think the fact that the anti whaling campaigns were limited to the peche and char only, and otherwise didn't target, for example, covering of the hair, provided a space for women to selectively adapt to, um, to the new norms. And these norms were basically that you, know, you were supposed to remove your char with an overcoat. And you could combine it with a headscarf, even though obviously this was never suggested openly, but also was never prevented either. There were, of course, cases of non compliance that we know, as I mentioned also, that women were fined for keeping their pet and charshaf. There was police intervention, but the opposite was also true. That is, women were harassed for removing their and uh, Some and uh, sorry, Some men attacked. Women And also that, you know, the immediate assumption when you look at the literature on on Turkey in general, because it's, um, you know, very much depicted as a story of a fight, a a struggle between secular forces versus Islamic forces, the, the main reasons why women would be hesitant to comply were not necessarily religious reasons, but often they were economic reasons, because what the anti-vailing campaigns implied was, it was, as I said, the replacement of the charge shaft with an overcoat, which was, one, quite expensive, and second, was not really available. So it's not a coincidence, for example, that there is an explosion of sewing courses in Turkey in the, in the 1930s, because that was the way... You know, there were collective efforts to turn, you know, uh, courses on how to turn your charge up into an overcoat. And the state authorities would actually help these efforts. There were there were efforts, you know, to mobilize charity to provide poor women with with, with overcoat. In other words, the reasons behind women's choices were uh, diverse, and their reactions were also diverse. And I also want to emphasize that it's not that you know women reacted to these campaigns. There were many women that were actually involved in the campaign. Some of the initiators of these campaigns in certain localities were women, or women members of city councils, uh, for example, or women members of the people's houses. And this was not—I have to also emphasize—confined to an elite segment of the women. There are indications, there are oral historical accounts also, that show that a significant portion of women were quite open to uh, change the way that you know they dressed. Uh, not so much because they embraced the 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 Kemalist, modernist, ideal uh, image of women entirely, but simply because they themselves wanted to change their dressing and the anti vailing campaigns kind of provided that legitimate opportunity, that legitimate space that they could do so collectively, right? And also so in that sense, for example, I argue that we need to see these opportunity spaces, that these campaigns perhaps unintentionally created. And for many women also, it was not just about changing the dress or removal of the peche and chasha. It was an opportunity to negotiate certain gender norms because of that close association between wailing and women's participation in the, in the public space. So in my analysis, many women saw this as an opportunity to negotiate those, those terms, those, those gender norms. And in doing so, uh, I think they very much shaped not just the course of the campaigns, but also their outcomes, because ultimately it was up to them to make whether make these campaigns a success or not. And my argument in the book is that although that you know Kemalist ideal of modern women um, that's a very strong ideal in visual representations of the regime at you know uh, at the elite level at the level of discourse but my argument is that ultimately even the Kemalist male elite were okay with a gradual transformation of women's clothing and they ultimately I think trusted in the fact that women themselves would embrace such a such a change and would ultimately gradually lead that change.
0: So let me ask, uh, I mean, it's, uh, one last big question, but I mean, you, you mentioned it earlier, so I think it would be good to touch on that. You started this whole research process with the comparison of Iran and Turkey in mind. So maybe could you draw a a few distinctions between what you see happening in Turkey during this time period and in Iran where similar campaigns were happening during the 30s Uh, what were some of the major differences that you saw
1: yes so um, there were I mean Turkey was not a unique case certainly in the interwar period in initiating anti-vading campaigns there were a number of uh, Muslim-majority contexts where we see similar discussions on whaling and similar anti-whaling campaigns. And I mean, if you look more more broadly, we can talk about the emergence of you know, modernist discourses across the Muslim world in the 19th and early 20th century, discourses especially around issues of gender and women's uh, social roles. And the similarity between these discourses is Strike, striking, really. I mean, we can talk about a transnational Muslim environment which was very much shaped by an in- intense intellectual and cultural exchange where there was a common perception of decline and, you know, vis a vis the West and uh, a perception of backwardness. And so the remedies to deal with that backwardness, to deal with that decline. Uh, were also quite similar, and uh, of course, the debate around whaling was one of those main debates. And especially, I would say, the issue of covering of the face, because that was actually the, the veil that marked the difference of Muslims in the Western Orientalist discourse as well. So there was kind of this this consensus, this unity among Muslim modernist elites of the time across the Muslim world that, you know, the veil, the face veil had to be removed. And that, you know, that marker of difference should be done away with. So I would say that Muslim majority countries were in conversation with each other on this. And certainly, for example, in the Turkish case, there was a keen interest in, in in following what was happening on this issue in other muslim majority countries and so i think there was also kind of a partly a competition uh, among the muslim majority countries you know in the in the struggle for for modernization so yes there are very broad uh, similarities across cases but the differences i think were also equally crucial and they were um, centered around the question of, you know, yes, we need to remove the whale, but the question is, of course, how to do it, right? So, and when I look at these um, differences, um, the, the first thing that was important to me to understand and locate was the s- scope of the campaign, scope of the campaigns in each case, right? So, for example, the the debate, Around whaling, unveiling, etc., did it remain as mainly a debate among the elite? Or did it remain really as an intellectual debate, or were there really solid, systematic interventions or measures taken in a in a certain direction on this issue? So, for example, can we talk about a campaign if there was no systematic intervention or full force? mobilization. And the cases that I have in mind when I'm saying this is mainly the Arab countries in the Middle East, for example, where it seems that the the discussion, first of all, was very much limited to, to the face veil, which also shows us that what veiling and unveiling entailed in each national context, differed significantly. So in terms of the limit of the discussion, I mean, I I would say the discussion was more limited in the Arab majority uh, countries of the Middle East, even though, of course, everywhere, complete Europeanization or complete modernization of women's clothing was the ideal. That meant the removal of the covering of the hair, basically. But in practice, it seems that the discussion was very much limited to the face veil in the case of Arab countries, for example. And that, I think, for me, marked the difference between the Arab world on the one hand and Iran and Turkey on the other hand, uh, as far as Middle East is concerned. Uh, Because in Turkey and Iran, the discussion was broader. It, It included... The Charshaf or the chador in the Iranian case—that is the full body cover—but also that you know there were systematic attempts to remove these these veilings. Uh, and I think part of the reason why there is that difference between Turkey and Iran and and the Arab countries is the, the colonial context. I think because the Arab countries were under colonial domination one way or another in, during the interwar period, that colonial context, I think, significantly altered the dynamics of the discussion, the demand for and the debate on whaling. In other words, I mean, just like the discussions around women's political rights, the issue of women's unwailing was, I think, partly at least overshadowed by the dynamics of the colonial rule so it was i think relatively easier compared to Turkey and Iran in a colonial context to to denounce unveiling as imitation of the west or as imposition of the of the uh, colonial forces etc and so that's that's one thing that makes, I think, the the case of Turkey and Iran much more similar to each other and and much more um, comparable. Then there is the case of the Soviet Central Asia, especially the case of Uzbekistan um, stands out here as a kind of a typical example because of, sorry, a typical example, because of the extent of violence involved. So there was a systematic campaign led by Communist Party members, uh, but there wasn't actually an outloving of, of the whale, and that's interesting, I think, and that's also important to note. Uh, but there were uh, systematic um, attempts to remove not just the faced veil, but also the full-body cover, the Perangie. The and there were collective reactions and male violence towards women who removed their uh, face veil. We know from Miriam Kamp's book that uh, it's estimated that over 2,000 women were killed by male opponents of unveiling. They were killed because they removed their veil. So that's also a kind of an, a typical can, uh, example. And also, I think, although there are broad similarities in the sense that, you know, there was a, at least a systematic Attempt measures similar to the case in Turkey and Iran. I think the Soviet dominance again, nevertheless, overshadows the discussion around whaling in in Soviet Central Asia. And even though, as um, Kamp again suggests, that you know we shouldn't sort of reduce the question to it was a Soviet imposition, because there were, we know that you know Muslim reformists voices, Muslim women activists that called for unveiling, that called for the removal of the face veil, for example, before the Soviet domination. But I think nevertheless, presence of that domination ultimately changed the terms of the debate, which is, I think, very similar to the case of Arab countries. So that sort of left me with, again, the cases of Iran and Turkey and Albania, actually, which is perhaps the least known case and least studied case when it comes to anti whaling campaigns. Um, because these three countries were independent countries in the interwar period, I think the campaigns in these countries were much more similar and thus um, uh, comparable. Although it the end of the day, I think there were also significant differences among these three cases. Albania is actually the only case where um, there was um, a legislation. So the use of the face veil was outlawed in 1937. And contrary to what is often repeated in the literature, there was no legislation or a central government degree that banned whaling in Iran. So in that case as well, the Turkish and the Iranian cases are very similar. In both cases, the regimes opted to go through the the local route to deal with this issue. But ultimately, uh, my analysis in that comparison is that, comparatively speaking, uh, um, the Turkish state ultimately had greater capacity in diffusing into the local compared to the Iranian regime. And there was was more diversity institutionally at the local level in the Turkish case. In the Iranian case, the campaigns uh, run very much through either the Ministry of Interior and Ministry of Education, whereas in the Turkish case, for example... The governor's office was involved, but also so was the party. There was the municipality. So many of the campaigns were actually decisions by the city council. There were the people's houses. So I'm I'm not saying that this makes, that institutional diversity makes the Turkish case less authoritarian or more democratic, but I think that it ultimately helped for more diffusion at the local level and ultimately, relatively, made them more effective at the local level, and also it helped to contain the local reaction in the provinces. So that is my, um, in, in, in a nutshell, uh, my comparative take on this.
0: Well, that, that that's good. Well, so let me let me end just with the sort of standard last question we ask on these New Books Network uh, interviews, which is. With this book done and finished, what project are you moving on to now? If you could tell us a, you know, just a little bit about that, that would be wonderful.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, well, I, I I continue to work on the single party era. We have actually just finished uh, edited, editing a book together uh, with my colleague, Alexander Slampro, in Turkish, on the single-party period. And as I said, because I had to dig a lot, Ruben, to unearth these campaigns, I also gathered a lot of material about other other issues um, during my research. So there are some, not book-size, but some article-size uh, projects um, that are in the pipeline that are about um, the... the Interwar period, but my aim as a as, as as a next step is to really try to see this period and Turkey in this period in a more transnational context and not just in comparison with Muslim majority countries, but also other countries as well. So I've been involved in this project um, in the last two years. On in fact, uh, quite a quite a shift for me. Uh, a project on the Habsburg legacy and the the legacy specifically of the Habsburg policy towards Islam and Muslims and how that legacy shaped the policies of the current nation states that are that, you know that are post-Habsburg uh, countries so although that's a different case but it The type of questions that I deal with colleagues on that project are very similar to the questions that I actually deal with in studying the single-party period in Turkey. So that also allowed me kind of other opportunities and that opened the door uh, for me to really rethink this period in a more transnational context. And I want to look more into the making of these Kemalist Policies and they're shaping through those to- transnational influences and links. And for example, I would like to work more on the formation of Kemal secularism in relation uh, to other cases at the time, and, and 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 influences from other other cases. You know, try to understand, for example, the adoption of the civil code in a larger context. Uh, for example or some of these um reforms including but also in other areas as well so that's um that's one thing and the second thing i, I continue to work on as i said at the beginning in contemporary turkey i i worked on on the Dianit in particular and the feminization of the Dianet and the religious sphere in in general recently and now um i more Shifted to the question of uh, familialism, like AKP's familialism. And this, you know, I'm trying to understand the nature of this neoconservative shift in Turkey or religio conservative shift in Turkey and what it means in terms of the transformation of the gender regime. And I'm sure the listeners are also. Familiar with these recent, for example, withdrawal of Turkey from the Istanbul Convention. So very, I'm very much interested in understanding this dramatic shift in in Turkey and what it what it entails for women's rights, and and particularly as I said, on the question of familialism. So, and there is the idea also that to understand that in a more uh, comparative perspective. And, and lastly, I've been working on the history of the women's movement in Turkey for a while now. And that's a topic that's very, I mean, especially dear to my heart. So I will also continue to work on the women's movement in Turkey in a kind of a long durée um, perspective. So these are the plans at the moment.
0: Well, I mean, those are good plans. I I specifically look forward to the uh, book you have coming out pretty soon. Thank you. But these other projects as well seem very interesting. So I'd like to thank you for uh, talking about them and spending time with us today. Thank you
1: very much. Thank you very much, Ruben.